people forget about this in, in our world of immediate gratification is that if you make a 1% change right now, it doesn't look very different. But over time, 1% really leads to a very different path. I'm Luke Story, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this week's special Friday episode. It's number 455, Field Tripping, Psychedelic Entrepreneurship, and the Journey of Waking Up with Ronan Levy. Get your freshly baked show notes, links, and transcripts for this one at lukestory.com slash Ronan. Here's a little taste of the topics covered today. An innovative new workbook called The Trip Journal, The Essential Psychedelic Tool. The importance of integrating transcendent experience, whether by psychedelic medicines, breathwork, meditation, or even yoga. How our guest co-founded Field Trip Health, the world's largest global provider of psychedelic-assisted therapies. The book, The Ketamine Breakthrough. How Ronan transitioned from corporate lawyer to CEO of a psychedelic therapy company. His personal experience with psychedelic therapy and the different benefits people are experiencing with ketamine at home and clinically in one-on-one and group therapy sessions. The complexities of people with mental illness diagnoses using psychedelic therapy how Ronan sees companies like his evolving the way we think about the mental health industry. And then finally, we talk about RE104, Field Trip's new drug that's currently in development. So if you're just psychedelic curious or a well-traveled psychonaut, this dialogue has a lot to offer today. And for those of you who find yourself inspired by Ronan's journey and are interested in a journey of your own, here's what to do. Go to lukestory.com slash field trip to find out how to take advantage of their cutting edge therapies. Now, before we take off on this trip, take note that we'll be back next Tuesday with unlocking the mysteries of hair loss and all methods of restoration for men and women with Dr. Alan Bauman. Really excited for that episode as someone whose hairline is receding uh, way faster than I would prefer. So make sure to tune in for that one as well. And by the way, if you'd like me to email you next week's episode and every other episode to follow, we can make that happen. I'll do my part if you do yours. All you need to do is visit lukestory.com slash newsletter and enter your name and email. That's how the magic happens, guys. Once you're on the list, you'll be the first to know when new episodes are published and all the valuable resources from every show will be waiting in your inbox every week. Again, that's lukestory.com slash newsletter. All right, enough said. Let's get ready to rumble with a man doing much impactful work in the world of mental health and personal growth, Mr. Ronan Levy on the Lifestylist Podcast. All right, Ronan Levy, let's make a podcast. Let's do it. Shall we? I'm ready. So uh, you live in Toronto. I live in Toronto, yes. And you're visiting us folks here in Austin. Yeah, I'm coming down to uh, the great city of Austin where it is much hotter than Toronto. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's refreshing to come to the warmth, but a little overwhelming, I'm not going to lie. And what are you uh, doing here on this trip? Coming down to record podcasts. Recording with oh, you, cool. I recorded with uh, Lauren and Michael over at the Skinny Confidential. Recorded nice. with uh, Joe Patitucci. I was supposed to record with Jamie Wheel, but uh, he decided to up and go to Europe instead. So I'm not going to judge him for that. Oh, and cool. then uh, having dinner with one of our big investors in Field Trip. Awesome, man. Yeah, awesome. I was waiting for you to say and Joe Rogan. You know, I tried. I always, I'm always bummed when like a. Uh, a talent comes to town and they record on my podcast and they also do Joe Rogan. <laughs> that happened with Gabor Mate. We did actually, we did one on Zoom. Yeah. Cause he was, you know, he lives in Canada. He wasn't going to be here. 
and we get on Zoom and he's, I'm like, hey, how's it going? He goes, where are you? I'm in Austin. He's like, oh, I'm coming there tomorrow. I'm like, really? And then he comes here and does Joe Rogan. You know, I'm like, ah. <laughs> Yeah, what are you going to do? Joe Rogan is the center of gravity, man. It's uh, it's hard to fight that center of gravity it's, sometimes. It's but it's it's also good to, you know, exist in his orbit and, and benefit from the flow that comes from it. So Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, the more popular his podcast gets, the more popular podcasts in general get. So That's true. More power to him. Yeah. Um, tell us about your new workbook, The Trip Journal. Yeah, so um, the trip journal was born as a concept a couple of years ago. We launched Field Trip, uh, which is you know our publicly traded uh, psychedelic assisted therapy company. We got twelve clinics across across the world right now, um, and then Denver uh, decided to decriminalize psychedelics, and we realized that. We knew psychedelics were having a moment, but that was going to accelerate it. And there'd be all these people around the world thinking, oh, psychedelics are now legal in Denver. I'm going to start doing psychedelics. And we realized that we had developed all of these incredible tools and protocols to really maximize the positive experience of a psychedelic journey. Um, and we need to find a platform to try and get it out to people. So if you're new to psychedelics, you're not going in uninformed. You're not just going to take mushrooms or MDMA or whatever and see what happens. You've got a process. You've got an understanding. Uh, and so we wanted to build an app. And then uh, Matt Gray, I don't know if you know Matt, he started a company called Herb, one of the biggest cannabis-based media platforms out there. It was like, why don't you do an analog version before you build an app? So we started doing an analog version, just a journal inspired by the five-minute journal, uh, which was started by a couple of friends of mine for psychedelic integration, just a really simple workbook to help people who are anywhere on their journey with psychedelics to integrate properly and prepare properly uh, and do the work properly, or not properly because that implies there's a right and wrong, but leveraging the best wisdom and understanding of all the people in the field trip ecosystem because we've got really great people together. And and so myself and, and Corey Harrison put together the trip journal and and, uh, and then we connected with Tucker Max, uh, another Austin person uh, who who has a publishing company. I love the idea. So the trip journal was born and oh, it's now cool. published through through Libra Press and uh, getting great feedback. You know, That's we put, awesome. a, put a lot of effort to making it beautiful, right? It all goes into set and setting, right? It's very thoughtful, yeah. but it's also designed to be a very uh, beautiful experience as well in using it. That's really cool. Yeah, it's so important. We we were just having a conversation with my uh, prior guest, Dr. Nicole LaPera, and um, and she's not a, a big advocate of you know psychedelics or plant medicines, although she's not opposed. But it's not her lane yeah. exactly, but without even knowing really all that much about this field, she described without even using the word integration how important it is to have a framework of understanding, you know? And we were exploring the phenomenon of people that have these uh, tremendous um, transcendent experiences yet emerge as the same person. <laughs> I'm like, I, I think, I don't know, every time I've had one of these experiences, I mean, something about me and my life changes dramatically, oh, really, you know. Um, but, I, but I think that's it, right? Is like having, um, having a tool, having a framework, having kind of an understanding of, of what you're doing in there in the space. So that sounds really cool. Um, with the, the trip journal, out of curiosity, I'm not shitting on it. If you didn't do this, but I find anytime I'm going into an experience with something new yep. that is that is novel, like we were talking about 2CB, mm -hmm. um, 
which I've, I've experienced a couple of times, I'm always on Google, like reading possible side effects, you know, interactions, what to eat, not eat, like how long it lasts, where it comes from. Like I'm just someone who wants to know a lot about it. Did you guys happen to include any information like that as somebody prepares for it? I mean, we've we've provided a framework for preparation. I mean, we don't go deep into each psychedelics. We did that for a number of reasons. One, that would be an encyclopedia in and of itself to do that kind of work, right, and that's right. not what we're trying to build. We're also trying to navigate, because Field Trip is a publicly traded company, what we can and can't say had to be a little bit delicately massaged um, in terms of not advocating for it. You know, illegal drug use. So we didn't do that, but I. Then this is how you make acid in your bathtub. Exactly, exactly. Um, So we didn't do that, but it's part of the process, right? You know, it's uh, it it's important that people feel comfortable. I'm a person who kind of likes to go in blindly. Like I'll do a little bit of research and be like, I know enough. And then there are other people. You know, my wife is a perfect example who likes to go deep and understand everything and read everything. It's, it, it depends where you are and who you are, right? It wouldn't be appropriate for me, I think, to go that deep unless I felt called to go that deep on something. So yeah. it really depends. But a lot of the whole psychedelic journey is trusting your intuition and leaning into what feels right for you. Uh, so you go in with the, 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 the right ecosystem around you for the experience. That's so true. That's so important. I think that's part of the psychonaut journey of maturation is really learning how to heed the calls and to honor when it's not a hell yeah. When it's like, that could be interesting. That sounds maybe nice. That's a no. (laughs) (laughs) And that's been my experience of just, I just know when I'm supposed to be sitting somewhere like i just i get an invite i feel into it sleep on it ponder it a little yeah and there's a very specific kind of flavor to that yes within my nervous system and my intuition that says luke you are supposed to be there totally uh i feel like it's one of the things that has gotten lost in in our modern society is tapping into our intuition it it came up uh quite a bit in the conversation i just had with joe patatucci which i was recording with right before i came here which is just trusting that kind of innate feeling which is you know we talk about knowledge and data a lot these days right which is facts and information facts and information but God, whatever in the universe uh, that created our bodies also gave us intuition and emotion, you know, and, and the process of integrating um, or the process of understanding is taking facts and data information. You don't want to ignore that, that that's relevant, but integrating it with your emotions, your intuition. Sometimes the facts and data say yes, and your emotions say no, right? And, and so you need to take that and put that together. Um, and I feel like in our world these days, people are just like, I know the data of what's happened in the past, because all data is retrospective, it can't be prospective, um, is what we entirely rely on. And there's value in that. I mean, listen, modern science and medicine has got us really far. We are, on average, living a lot longer than we did 100 years ago. So we can't ignore the value in the process that has happened, but it's come at the displacement of the other side of it. And I think what we're seeing with the psychedelic 
experience in the psychedelic movement is people trying to tap back into that intuition and, and, and be more honest about it and be okay with being like, ah, my gut's not feeling right about this. And, and that's cool. And, and that's really something that I think everybody needs to get behind a little bit more. Yeah, that's, that's so true. It's, um, it's kind of a yin-yang feminine masculine thing, right? The analytical mind can only take you so far as can your intuition and emotions. I mean, if I, if I led my life by just how things feel, which is kind of something we see socially and politically, right? There's kind of one side of the spectrum is very fact-based, like these are the stats on this issue. And then the other side is kind of like, I just want to do what feels good, you know? And I think there's, you know, somewhere in the middle there maybe is is a true degree of, of intelligence that, that can that can move us forward. And it's definitely definitely true, I think, in this case. I think that's exactly right. And it goes from intelligence and, and knowing, and, and this is part of the experience that just came out of the documentary we just made, is is the aware, is the understanding, I guess, of going from knowing, which is in your mind, to awareness, which is almost an embodied knowing. It just goes deeper. You know, Anyone who's done therapy has probably had the experience where you have the exact same conversation over and over again, being like, ah, oh, fuck, I thought I dealt with that issue already. Uh, and it can feel like that. But then every once in a while, you have the same conversation and, you're like, and something clicks. And you're like, oh, I get it a little bit more. It now feels a little bit more meaningful. And now I can start to shift my life a little bit more to let that in. You know, you you talk about having transcendent experiences where nothing is the same after one of those moments. You know, for me, I've I found that it's been eye-opening, but it, it was funny. It was an exercise that uh, just happened recently going through the doc. Um, you know, my wife's friends asked, asked her, how has Ronan changed? Uh, and the answer was, outwardly, I'm not sure anyone would notice a change, but inwardly, I feel like a very different person. Um, mm. And I think we need to be okay with that because I, one of the things that I think people fear around psychedelic experiences is I'm going to do a, a ketamine experience at Field Trip Health. I'm going to go do ayahuasca in Peru. I'm going to do mushroom, whatever it is. And they're like, I'm scared that I'm going to grow my hair long, break up with my partner, quit my job and move <laughs> to Peru. It's like... I mean, that may be yeah. the case if that's that's truly who you are, but odds are it's just going to be subtle. It's just going to yeah. be a very subtle shift. And what's really cool about it, and people forget about this in, in our world of immediate gratification, is that if you make a 1% change right now, it doesn't look very different. But over time, 1% really right. leads to a very different path. And so I think we just need to all have patience around that and, and not worry about what changes today. Because I think in six months, a year, two, three years, you'll be like, oh yeah, everything did right. change, but not so immediately. That's a really good analogy. Like the the ship, right, that adjusts its rudder however many degrees, but over the course of a long journey, it's like on a different continent now yeah. than it would have been had it not set that, you know, that minute change in the trajectory. That's exactly right. Um, I think it's the part of us the part of us that's afraid like, oh, I'm going to lose who I am is actually the part of us that is not truly who we are, mm. right? It's, and that's, that's always the resistance in not just a psychedelic experience, but any kind of experience that requires one to exert courage and to walk into the unknown. I mean, it could be a you know, totally sober therapy session or whatever it is, right? It's like I notice that anytime I'm going into a ceremony or something, the part of me that's afraid of it 
is not actually my higher self that wants to evolve. It's the part of me that is clinging to these constructs of my personality, you know, call it ego, intellect, whatever. Not, yeah. not that there's anything wrong with those parts of one's personhood because you need that to be in a body and being a person and doing a podcast. But totally. the funny thing is, is that in my experience, the more that that construct is dismantled, the more improvements I actually see in my day-to-day life, like the less identified I am with that, the classical ego death. And I'm sure we're going to talk about 5-MeO-DMT because anyone that's had that experience, if you mention that to me, we're going to talk about it for four hours. <laughs> um, you know, because it's just so fucking otherworldly. Yeah. But, you know, in a situation like that, you're talking about the extreme dissolution of everything that you think you are. And, and the fear in that moment is that if I truly let go into this void or into the allness that I will disappear and I will cease to exist. And then it wears off and there you are again Mm -hmm. for me, like biting my fingernails again and being neurotic, just like I was in the first place. But maybe I feel a little more kinship with the divine, or maybe I'm, I'm finding access to a deeper level of compassion or love for myself and for others. Or maybe I'm able to resist temptations and, uh, avoid falling into certain patterns that have been, um, you know, deleterious to my life and and such. You know, that's exactly it, right? It's like you come back and you're still, you know, everywhere you turn, you're still yourself. But <laughs> yeah. if you don't have that feeling in your stomach right before, I mean, whether it's a psychedelic experience or even a therapy session or a meditation, uh, to some degree, you're not really. This is something I've had to learn. Letting it in, right? The experience, the 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 word that often gets used, at least in my construct uh, of what that feeling is, is dread, right? The sense that who you are is not who you're going to be, and your ego doesn't like that. Your ego has played a very important role getting you here. It keeps you safe. It keeps you identified. It you know, it, it's there to define Luke. It's there to define who Ronan is. It plays a role, and it doesn't like change. But if you're going to a situation where you're going to change, you're going to have that feeling. And if you don't have that feeling, then you're not fully immersed on all levels of what's about to happen Um, because you should be afraid. You are literally going into the unknown. You know, there's that old expression, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It's kind of true, but it's not so much fear. It's the unknown. All fear comes from the unknown, the un- unknowing of what's about to happen. And so if you know it's about to happen, you've already kind of made the shift. It's the things around the corner, the things you can't see that are coming that are always positive, depending on the perspective you bring to it, that, um, that creates real change. And when you let that in, when you receive that, that's when things start to happen. But it's scary. It should be scary um, because it's it's a change. It's unknown. Um, and so, yeah, all, all that's real. You know, all of that is real and, and, and that's good and that's okay. What led you to go from being a lawyer to starting this company in this space? For those, for the context, I kind of pulled a Tarantino on this conversation. You know, <laughs> okay. Started at the end yeah. uh, or the middle or somewhere. But uh, that's, I'm trying to get myself to be more spontaneous and not so like, because when I formulate my, my manuscript, it's, it's always like very thoughtful the way that I do it, believe yeah. it or not, uh, listeners. Um, there's always like a very specific structure to it. And sometimes I deviate from that, but I want to learn how to deviate even more and just trust Sweet. the process. But um, yeah. you know, sitting here with you, imagining you—I don't know what kind of law you practice—but 
you're a lawyer, maybe you hear about psychedelics or you've done them in college or high school and you found some value in it. Like, where does the idea land and actually become actionable where you started to do something with this idea? Yeah. Um, so I was a corporate lawyer, you know, classic, classic corporate lawyer. My, my path to becoming a lawyer was um, growing up, my parents split up at a very young age and I spent a lot of time surrounded by lawyers because their divorce um, was very acrimonious and, and got into some interesting stuff, kidnapping George Bush Sr. It was really, I'm happy to go into it. But there's <laughs> like, no, no, back up. You can't right. just skim over that. All right. Uh, yeah, so my parents split up with when I was two. Uh, it was back in the uh, early 80s when, you know, uh, you can actually read about it in the Globe and Mail, which is like the Canadian equivalent of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, back in the good old days where you can mention everybody's name and put air their dirty laundry, even children and all that kind of stuff. But um it was a pretty acrimonious divorce. Um, Does acrimonious mean contentious, litigious? Is that litigious, okay. angry? You okay. know, dangerous. Yeah, um, a lot of a lot of negative feelings. Okay. Um, and so, at one point, when I was still an infant, and I guess my parents had uh, split up, my my dad had kidnapped my brother. Um, I'm going to use the language of my mom. I wasn't there, but that's the perspective that seems accurate. So he kidnapped my brother and they had to go get him back from Las Vegas um, with like the FBI and all that kind of stuff. So like that kind of acrimony. And then, yeah. And then when I was uh, seven, uh, my family and I went to Expo 86. And at the time, my grandfather's company was like the third largest steel and, and metals recycling company in Canada. So he was very wealthy. And so when we were at Expo 86, it was my mom, my brother and I, and my maternal grandparents. Uh, and we were staying at the presidential in the presidential suite at whatever hotel we were staying at. And I remember going to the actual Expo 86, which is like the World's Fair. And on the drive there, uh, we got cut off by a limousine procession. So we asked the taxi driver, what's going on? And he said, oh, George Bush Sr., who was just then George Bush because he was vice president of the U.S. at the time, uh, was coming to Vancouver for Expo. Cool. We go to Expo. We come back that night to find out we've been kicked out of our room because George Bush is now staying in the presidential suite <laughs> at the hotel. All right, you know, whatever. We move into two other nice rooms, whatever. Apparently, my dad had decided this was a good time to potentially get my brother and I back. Um, And so he had hired two people to take us. Uh, Like bounty hunter kidnapper types? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I don't think they're like ruthless types, but to to grab us. And again, it was a, a time and era where privacy wasn't such a thing. So you could call a hotel and say like, hey, what room is Luke Story in? And they would tell you. Uh, so these people called apparently a few days in advance to find out what room we were in. They were told it was the presidential suite. Oh, that's getting good. So when they decided to make their move to try and capture <laughs> us, there was Secret Service and a whole bunch of people right at the presidential suite. So they got taken down and, and shipped off. So nothing happened. Oh, um, my God. You know, in terms of like actual break in, nothing happened to us. But we that day, it happened while we were at the expo uh, and we came back and our police everywhere and FBI everywhere and RCMP everywhere. And, uh, yeah, that was that was kind of the environment that I grew up in, and and so that's why you know for many years thereafter there were a lot of lawyers <laughs> in in and around my household, um, and I remember being a kid not having a, a a dad present, 
one of the lawyers they were in our house sat down and played video games with me. And he was a nice guy, you know, and I didn't really have that kind of male role model. And so I remember saying to my mom, I was about five, uh, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. And if you're a Jewish kid in a traditional household and you say you want to be a lawyer, you're never allowed to forget that fact. Um, <laughs> and so... You know, for, for through high school and the university, I was always on a path, a trajectory to becoming a lawyer. Not really having any clue what's involved with being a lawyer. I just thought you got paid a lot of money and could buy a big house and a fancy car and it sounded like a very worthwhile profession. I did that. I get to my first day of law school and I look around and I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, everyone is super lovely and I still have great friends, but I was like, these aren't my people. This is not who I am or what I want to be. I'm, I'm much more contrarian. I'm much more creative. I like, I like experimenting and pushing limits, and, and that's not what lawyers do. Um, and so I spent a few years practicing law, slowly worked my way out of the legal profession. Uh, I usually call it my descent into hell because I went from being a corporate lawyer which, you know, has some prestige, but most people are like, yeah, corporate law. And then I was a pharmaceuticals company lawyer. And then yeah. I was a media lawyer. Uh, and then I worked for an online dating company. And then I quit that and I decided I was going to be an entrepreneur at that point. I'd always been somewhat entrepreneurial and having side hustles uh, throughout. Uh, and it was finally my time. It was like 2010, 2011. App mania was happening. Create an app, become rich, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I left to start a company uh, with a friend of mine doing something tech. It flopped. Ended up opening a cash for gold store just by circumstance because I had nothing else to do. It was not anywhere on my aspiration list. What does that entail? That entails having a location where yeah. people bring their old jewelry and, and sell it to you. I mean, oh, wow. There's cash for gold places all around the world. You know, it's, oh, it's a great funny. way to look at Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I've, I've definitely driven by them on a number of occasions. It's, it's kind of like has a pawn shop kind of energy. That's exactly right. Okay. And, and yeah. so I had no aspiration to be that, but I had nothing yeah. else to do. And it was a circumstance... Um, where my mom was at a job that may have been ending and she was not in a position to retire. So I looked at the opportunity, which got brought to me by a friend of mine. And I was like, I don't want to do this, but my mom needs a job. So maybe I can start this business, learn something. If it gives my mom a job, even if I don't make any money, it's a win. So all right, all right let's do it. So we started, we, it still operates. We have three locations oh, no in way. and around the <laughs> really? Toronto area. Yeah, Sounds like a good business because I'm imagining you're giving people a little less than market Right for for their gold, and then your that gold's worth whatever it's worth. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, I didn't feel bad about it. I mean, it's not exactly the classiest, most exciting profession, yeah. but it's an industry fraught, like the pawn shop industry, with like just scummy people. So yeah. trying to do it with some degree of credibility and honesty was an opportunity to shift the dynamic in that space. Uh, and 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 so we did that. Um, and so that was like the I mean, last. In your in your defense, sorry to interrupt, but That's in your good. defense, I mean, like if I have some gold in the house right now, and like I'm like shit, I need five grand. I got these old earrings, my you know, my inherited from my grandma. Like, I'd be happy if your cash for gold store is down the street. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's exactly right. I mean, listen, the majority of people who come to us—not the majority, a decent number—are you know in hard times and they're looking to liquidate liquidate stuff. And so, on the one hand, it's nice to provide them with liquidity and give them cash so they can pay their bills. On the other hand, you feel terrible kind of profiting in that model, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> right. um, 
you know, we always try to do it in a way that's credible because you can walk into some of these places and and you can put the earring on and a guy will look at you. I know because I did the the groundwork to figure out how to run this business and you'd walk into stores and you'd put sound, something down worth like a thousand bucks that I knew was worth a thousand dollars because I did the research and they'd yeah. be like, give you a hundred bucks for it. Oh, and like really taking advantage of someone that's that's in hard times. Or uninformed. I was yeah, informed yeah. so I could be like, no, and then watch them go from a hundred bucks to like 800 bucks for a thousand dollar piece of jewelry. Right. And you're like, that's scummy. I'm like, well, just, just yeah. people be, treat people fairly. And, and so that's how we did it. Um, and so, you know, it was cool. It was a great experience. I got connected to some amazing people just by virtue of being an entrepreneur and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it never paid my bills. And so I went back to just doing legal work, freelance legal work, and eventually got connected to the people who would become my business partners in the cannabis industry, um, doing some legal work for them. And they didn't really want to get into the cannabis industry, but there was regulations changing in Canada. And uh, so they presented this, they had a list of ideas of things they wanted to pursue and and I basically said, I don't think any of them are good ideas. And then I, 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 as I was putting on my coat to leave, they're like, well, there's this one other idea. It's in the cannabis space, but oh, cannabis, it seems so sketchy. And I'm like, guys, like, look at, my, look at my path. Like cannabis, legal cannabis in Canada is probably going to be the most credible and legitimate thing I've done in my career. <laughs> so if you guys aren't going to do this, then I'm going to do this. I'd never really used cannabis. I'd smoked pot a handful of times. I wasn't a cannabis person, but... As an entrepreneur, you rarely get the opportunity where a multi-billion dollar market goes from illegal to legal literally overnight. And I'm like, how can you guys pass up this opportunity? And so I cajoled them for a little while. We started what became the largest network of cannabis specialized medical clinics in Canada. We helped about a quarter wow. million Canadians access the medical cannabis system. And through that process, it really opened my eyes to plant medicine. Up to that point, I was like, plant medicine. It's like, if people want to get high, cool, but don't call that medicine. Um, (laughs) And then I saw what happened, and it genuinely changed people's lives for the positive. People who are genuinely suffering. Um, And I was like, oh, maybe this is medicine. And so we spent a few years in the cannabis industry. We had a great time. We sold to Aurora Cannabis. uh, Spent a couple of years with Aurora, growing it into one of the largest cannabis producers globally. And then we left and it was time to do something new because we we're entrepreneurs. And literally the first conversation coming out of that was with someone who was doing something in psychedelics. And I'm like, what? Wait, psychedelics are a thing? And she pointed me to a few things. Michael Pollan had just published How to Change Your Mind. MAPS had just been granted breakthrough therapy designation for their MDMA-assisted trial. And interestingly, and, and this was a thing that really changed my mind, there were about four or five online stores selling psilocybin in Canada openly, not hidden, not dark web. You could go on the website, order mushrooms, and they'd be shipped to your house just openly. And at that moment, I realized that the global zeitgeist had changed, that psychedelics were coming and and the rest of the world just had to catch up to this awareness. And I had spent a lot of time working with meditation and reflection and coaching and therapy. And then in that first conversation, Judy Bloomstock, she runs a company called Diamond Therapeutics, said... Um, a single psilocybin-assisted therapy session is like 10 years of therapy in an afternoon. And I was like, even if that's a gross exaggeration, if there's any truth to that whatsoever, there's no greater impact I can have on the world than helping to try and bring that to more people. And, and so that's how it all started. I'd never tried psychedelics to that point, really. Uh, so a couple of weeks later, we went out, we bought a gram of mushrooms each, 
Light down on our couches <laughs> in the office and uh, had our first psychedelic really? experience. Yeah. So oh it was a very God. long-winded way of how did I go from lawyer to uh, psychedelic entrepreneur. That's that, cool. Uh, we got nothing but time, man. When it comes to health, I'm always looking for solutions founded on science and inspired by nature. I want products that adopt ancestral ways of living in our modern day world. This, my friends, is why I'm such a huge fanboy of Bond Charge. They're a holistic wellness brand with a huge range of evidence-based products to optimize your life in so many ways. From EMF management and circadian-friendly lighting, Bond Charge products help you naturally address the issues of our modern-day way of life effortlessly and with maximum impact. And one of my all-time favorite products from Bond Charge are their 100% blackout sleep masks. And this is important because creating a pitch black sleep environment solves poor sleep, frequent awakenings, and sleeping during night shifts. Now, personally, since I've worked very hard to make our bedroom totally dark with custom window shades, my most common uses of the Bond Charge mask are as follows. Creating a blackout room when traveling and during long flights and supporting naps, meditation, and even spiritual ceremonies. What makes this mask the best ever is that it's 100% blackout, super soft to wear, has adjustable straps for max comfort, works for back, belly, and side sleepers, has adjustable eye cups to avoid eye pressure and room for long lashes, plus it's super breathable so your face doesn't overheat when you're trying to chill. You can score yourself a couple sleep masks right now by going to bondcharge.com slash lifestylist, and if you're smart, you'll use the code lifestylist to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E, bondcharge.com slash lifestylist. And again, your code is also lifestylist. I remember when we first met that at that point, you didn't have that much direct experience with a bunch of different psychedelics. Like no. I think when even when we first talked and you were already in business, doing the field trip with the ketamine and all that. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, he's going to have an interesting ride, which now you have, and we'll get into that, you know, yeah. with your documentary and all this stuff. I'm like, oh, he's going, he's going all in now, which is, it's just kind of what, what I've done. I mean, earlier in life, um, very unintentionally, I did a lot of, I mean, at the time I didn't think about it a lot, but I couldn't count the number of times that I did LSD or mushrooms when I was a kid, you know? So yeah. I guess it was a lot, but there was a huge long break, but I think I've been prudent in my frequency, but also pretty committed to the path over the past three or four years or whatever it's been, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I thought that was interesting that you had this business and we're still kind of like putting your toe in the water. So what was that first uh, journey like when you all sat in the office or laid down in the office and it took one gram? Because it's interesting because one gram is almost like, I don't think I would want to do one gram. Right. You know what I mean? Generally speaking, I kind of want a microdose that's imperceivable or I want to just do the full thing. You yeah. know, The only time I've had positive experiences taking one gram of mushrooms is just out in nature with people that I really enjoy and trust and feel very comfortable with. And I'm just interfacing with nature and it's it's a museum dose kind of, you know? Yeah. Where like, I wouldn't want to drive a car, but I'm not totally tripping. Yeah. But it's that in-between space can get very purgatorial, <laughs> you know, because you're not all the way there, but you're not all the way here. It's 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 wonky. Purgatory is much worse than hell in my opinion. So, um, <laughs> 
Yeah, so so my friend UJ, who is one of the founders of the Five Minute Journal, you know, he was he was our coach in terms of how to do it, mm-hmm. uh, and he suggested one gram. So you're not going too deep, but yeah. you're going to get a good taste of it. And that first uh, experience was um, it showed me the potential. You know, the data was there, the information was there. Going back to that thing about integrating knowledge and, and awareness or intuition and and, and data. Um, the, the key things that happened were I took the, the the dose and within about, I don't know, 45 minutes, I realized that the anxiety that I had always carried in my life, just low-grade anxiety, was gone for a little while. And I had oh, never wow. realized I'd been carrying anxiety because it was always just there. And all right. of a sudden it was gone. I'm like, oh, that's, that's nice. That's a, a really pleasant experience. And then the giggles kicked in and I remember we, we laughed <laughs> as hard as I think I laughed for a long time. I just walked into the room at one point after going to the bathroom and that was enough to send us into stitches. Um, And then the other thing that showed me the power of these experiences was we had just left Aurora um, and it was a little bit tenuous. You know, they weren't so happy with us in the terms we left on. And we had thought we had acted super maturely and and taken the high road and didn't really understand why they were kind of like that. And during the psychedelic experience, I put myself in their shoes in the truest sense of empathy. And I'm like, oh, I get it. I get why they're pissed off. It's, you know, I I wouldn't have done anything different. Still took the right path, but I get their emotion now. And I'm like, wow, that's power. You know, that level of empathy, people need to experience that. You know, if you want to solve the world's problems, that level of empathy is going to be a good start to uh, to doing that. And if, if if mushrooms or psychedelic experiences can open that up to a lot of people, that's going to be that's going to be world changing. Wow, God, so many situations come to mind as you say that, where I've spontaneously acknowledged how fucked up my behavior was. I'm not saying that yours was, but you could see their point. Yeah. But I've had just, yeah, I mean, just laying there, having the experience, and then think of someone or a situation and just realize, oh my God, I was so wrong. I was so out of line, you know? And and even in many cases, making kind of a psychic or energetic amends to that person's soul. And in, in many cases, coming out of it and actually making direct amends and going, man, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that I was, you know, that I was in such uh, a depth of error, you know, there. My bad. But, you know, that I think that level of self-awareness that can be achieved is is I don't know. I mean, you get it in other ways, right? But it's sometimes it just smacks you in the face in an experience like that where it's undeniable and you just know, man, I got to I got to fix this. Or, or stop doing that in the future, whatever it is. You know? Or just even understand, right? Like at the end of the day, I still look back and said, what we did was perfectly legit. And it's one of the big lessons I've had to learn in, in my personal growth story, which is you may be angry at something I did, but I didn't make you angry. So you've got to accept mm-hmm. you know, responsibility for your own emotions. But just being like, oh, you know, I see... I see the connection of dots that I didn't see before for how you got to that place. And it's like, I don't, I don't have anything to apologize for. I can say, I'm sorry that you're angry. I'm not sorry for what I did, right, um, right. but I understand your perspective a lot more now. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Uh, so 
when you guys what was the what was the launch of Field Trip? I mean, did you guys go rent a space and figure out that ketamine was the most viable and legal and safe route? And like, how did you like cobble together the first iteration of your of your uh, enterprise here? Yeah, so we're like, okay, we got to do. I was committed to the cause, and everybody's like, "What are you going to do? It's all illegal. It's not like cannabis." And I'm like, "I don't know. We're gonna figure it out." Because I knew my soul was just like, "This is what you got to do, Ronan." Um, so we spent a lot of time just thinking, exploring, and we happened to cr- across two valuable pieces of information, which one was uh, in Jamaica, psilocybin and LSD are, are not illegal. Um, and we had good relationships in Jamaica because there was a lot of cannabis-related work <laughs> happening in Jamaica, no surprises. Um, Let's not stereotype Ross does, no. <laughs> uh, and, and then we learned how ketamine was being used as a psychedelic, so we're like, well, Let's do both. And so we opened up uh, a research facility that does cultivation research on psilocybin producing mushrooms at the University of West Indies in Jamaica. Still operates, doing some really cool stuff there. Uh, And then we decided to open up ketamine clinics. And we had experience running medical clinics because that's what we were doing in the cannabis industry. Uh, And so we opened our first field trip health location in Toronto in March of 2020. So about a week before the oh, pandemic so pretty, shut everything down. That's pretty recent. Yeah. Yeah. God, the timing of that. And you guys, you guys pulled through, you survived. We, we did. Uh, we're, you got to be lucky to be good and you got to be good to be lucky. And yeah. we were lucky because we had planned to do a financing about six months later uh, and then COVID happened and the broader markets were down 40%, right? Like everyone was losing money hand over fist if you had any investments. But there are a couple of stocks, uh, Mind Medicine, Mind Med, and uh, what was called Champignon Brands at the time. They were up 200% where everybody else was down 40%. So all these investment banks started calling us being like, hey, you guys want to raise money? It's a great time to raise money for psychedelic stocks. And we're like, not really? But we didn't know if there was going to be an economy you know, a year down the road. We had, it was really the early days of the pandemic. We had no line of sight about what was happening. Um, and so we decided to raise some money and, and, and that sustained us and help us, helped us open the, the next 11 locations and all the other cool work we've done, like building the app and, and all that kind of stuff. Wow. And so um, by the time your first location had opened, had you had a therapeutic ketamine experience yourself? Nope. It took uh, about a year, year and a half afterwards. Uh, I went to our Santa Monica location and had my first experience with ketamine, which was actually pretty dark. Um, I'm going to say it wasn't the most... You weren't giggling to, about <laughs> going to the bathroom? <laughs> I, I was not giggling about going to the bathroom. <laughs> I just went to the bathroom. It's so funny. So yeah. good. Uh, yeah, ketamine no. is, ketamine's trippy. You know, I mean... No pun intended, but yeah, I, I've I've had some experiences where I'm kind of in there going, I don't know if I totally like this, you know, and just kind of breathing and going, uh, I know it doesn't last that long, so whatever this is will end, thankfully. Yeah. It's not like some other very long-acting type of psychedelics and stuff, but so you had a bit of a heroin um, journey? It was, it was, I felt like I was at the center of you know, the source, like the universe or whatever you want to call it. And it, it was undulating and it was alive, you know, it's like, oh, this is, this is what eternity feels like. And, mm-hmm. and it's alive. Like after you die, it's just not nothingness. You go back to whatever this thing is, um, which was beautiful. But then I got this distinct sense that 
you can be a liver cell in, in eternity, which is you're alive, but it's not necessarily the most fulfilling experience. And, and it kind of felt like limbo being like, God, I would hate to be a, a liver cell in the, in the liver of eternity. Um, and there's just like a, a, a lot of discomfort associated with that. It wasn't scary. It wasn't sad. It was just like, oh, I don't like the feeling of it. And then as I started to come back, I realized how much gratitude I had for this life right here that for all the highs and lows and difficulties and stress and pandemics and all that kind of stuff, it's a really amazing experience to get to be human. Um, and it's such a privilege and that we should enjoy it. And that was what I took out of the experience. So even though the experience went was unpleasant, I guess, for lack of a better term, I came out of it with a deep gratitude for everything that we get to experience in life. Like my, my favorite... Author Tom Robbins says, uh, give me life, all of life, the miserable as well as the superb. And it, and it sounds like a, a great statement of like, yeah, that's a great way to live. Um, and this really embodied that for me. Wow. And did you uh, go through the whole field trip protocol? Uh, or was that just a one-off experience where you're like, hey, we got this location, I'm going to go in and See what ketamine feels like. It was just a, a one-off. Our, our typical protocol involves six sessions and three integration sessions over the course of you know a few weeks. And so I wasn't in LA that long. I was just oh, okay. in for a few days, but I wanted to have an experience. And I couldn't do it in Toronto because the regulations in Toronto are different and because I'm not treatment resistant and, and depression or anxiety, our, our physicians there can't prescribe. Oh, in the US, it's a lot more liberal. So our, our, our clinicians there are more comfortable treating people who are just dealing with life. That's so funny how the, the different countries have just random perspectives on regulation, you know, because isn't in Canada, isn't like clinical DMT almost legal or legal? I, I hear things out of care just that I, I haven't been to Vancouver in a very long time, but I pictured the whole city is just being a total open air drug market <laughs> and all drugs are legal like Amsterdam, but like worse, you know, like, <laughs> And then they're like, well, there's this nuance in the law about you going and participating in ketamine therapy because you don't have the proper diagnosis. It's just weird. Yeah, it's 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 less of a legal issue and more of a medical issue. So in the U.S., you have the the boards uh, that oversee uh, physicians and and qualify them and give them licenses to practice medicine. In Canada, they're called colleges. In the U.S., the boards are like, go forth and use your medical judgment. In Canada, and at least in Ontario. They're like, no doctors, here are the rules you're going to play by and this is how you have to do things. And if you don't do it, then we're going to censure you or take away your license. And so it's less of a legal issue. But in Canada, from a uh, legal perspective, Canada's very liberal. I don't like, no, no one gets prosecuted for psychedelics. In Toronto, uh, a psilocybin mushroom dispensary just opened just around the corner from our office, openly selling mushrooms to people who wow. walk in off the street. Cool. 5-MeO DMT, uh, your favorite, <laughs> is unregulated in Canada, so it's perfectly legal to use and get access to uh, from chemical suppliers. So, wild. You know, we're, we're very open-minded when it comes to this stuff in Canada. That's amazing. It's a funny story, too. So right after that conversation with Judy Bloomstock, and she pointed to me to this online store, all of these online stores selling mushrooms, um, one of them got shut down. And if you imagine that happening in the US, it's probably like DEA, guns blazing, you know, takedown. In Canada, Health Canada sent them a letter saying, you're selling an unauthorized medicine without permission, please stop. And so the store was like, 
okay. That's how Never it ended. polite. Very Canadian. Very Canadian, Canadian experience. A polite letter. Dear Madam, sir. <laughs> yes, exactly. If you wouldn't mind, if you wouldn't be too troubled, could you stop breaking the law, please? Yes. Over the years, I've been collecting and using dozens of different healing technologies at home. But if I had to pick just one device to keep on hand, it would likely be my ozone system. It's actually hard to imagine living without it at this point. And for those who don't know, ozone is a gas made from activated oxygen. And for the past 100 plus years, medical grade ozone has been used internally to provide a plethora of incredible benefits. In fact, it's got a long history of use in chronic disease, especially for cancer, autoimmune, Lyme, infections, and mold toxicity. Over 2,500 medical studies on ozone exist, and over 10 million treatments are done annually. But you don't need to go to a hospital, clinic, or even doctor to take advantage of the benefits of ozone. Research has found that there are easy ways to do it at home to get the same benefits, which is what I do to take my health and energy to the next level. Simply O3 ozone systems are designed to make ozone therapy safe and easy to implement. The 3.0 complete kit by Simply O3 comes with all the supplies you need to do ozone therapy at home for $1,800. Now, by contrast, a single IV ozone treatment at a clinic can cost anywhere from $300 to $1,000. So this is a really cost-effective way to get the benefits of ozone. So to get a lifetime of treatments for you and your friends and family for only $1,800, here's what you do. Visit simplyo3.com slash Luke. Then use the code Luke at checkout to get 10% off. Oh, and heads up, they offer a lifetime warranty and a six-month money-back guarantee. So you can try it out for six months and see the benefits yourself. And if you don't dig it, send it back for a full refund. Again, go to simplyo3.com slash Luke and enter the code Luke at checkout. You'll thank me later. A friend of mine uh, who undoubtedly listened to this episode because he always sends me texts about the episodes um, named David Keller out in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, we had been uh, buddies in the context of um, being recovering addicts and I kind of left the reservation and started exploring these realms with great success. And so he was kind of observing that and kind of following in my footsteps and getting um, getting medicine curious, you know. And I said, I don't know, maybe you should start with like ketamine therapy with a therapist so you don't go off the rails and do anything stupid. And so I don't remember if I might have even told him. I think I did tell him, David, if you're listening, tell me what the real story is because sometimes I make up the story if sure. I don't really remember. As I remember, <laughs> uh, I told him about Field Trip and he signed up and did the, you know, all the pre- kind of intake sessions and that did the seven or whatever sessions and all the integration, all the things like he followed the whole program. Yep. And, uh, and changed his life. It's awesome. Yeah. Reported that, you know, everyone that worked there was amazing. Uh, aesthetically, the space was beautiful, super vibey, very comfortable, safe. Like everything was totally chill and it was an absolute home run. So, Wonderful. Uh, so kudos to you. What, what else went into the, Kind of the the curating and designing of you know of the set the setting how do the therapists work how do they get trained how's the whole thing kind of come together yeah so I, I take no credit whatsoever for the beautiful design of our all of our clinics the aesthetics are amazing not too dissimilar from the vibe you've got going on here to be quite honest we really focused on trying to make it feel 
like home, right? You want to you want to feel at ease. You want to feel comfortable. You don't want fluorescent lights and frenetic energy. And so, Skylar our designer just designed beautiful spaces and then brought. I'd call it like a bohemian chic feel to each one, but they're super comfortable. Um, it's always been the case, at least in my experience, that people who are into psychedelic therapies and psychedelics, they bring the right kind of openness and welcomeness. I think as a therapist in general, you probably bring that vibe, but people in the psychedelic space also bring a lot of warmth, acceptance, loving, welcoming wherever you are on your journey. So finding the right people has never been hard. All of our therapists have some degree of training, uh, whether they went to the California Institute for Integral Studies or have trained with MAPS or you know, we offer internal training now. They've all got some degree of psychedelic assisted therapy experience before they come to work with us. And so it's been easy to cultivate that kind of vibe. And, you know, it's a very thoughtful process, but it's also like, if you just want someone to feel comfortable and at home, it's not such a hard thing to do. You know, right. you're, you're welcoming, you offer them tea or coffee or water, you have them take a seat, relax, you know, check in on them. It's, 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 almost basic human decency that gets lost i think quite a bit in the in the medical profession um and and that's that's what's it like that and and deep focus on integration so there's a lot of ketamine infusion centers where they give you ketamine uh through an iv and you go there and then you go home and that's treating it ketamine like an antidepressant we like to treat it like a psychedelic so we give it intramuscular so it's not oh, as low and slow it's a fast onset and it's an onset and it's a deep trip because we want you to have oh. those psychedelic experiences <laughs> oh, God, that's want- <laughs> like we're talking about you know that like ooh, my my palms start sweating a little bit i'm like ooh, sudden deep ketamine that makes me nervous yeah so yeah. in in some ways for me, my ketamine experience is probably the most analogous to 5-MeO. Uh, when we yeah. do intramuscular, you know, it's coming fast and you're going deep. Um, and how many how many milligrams, if you happen to know, are we talking here? So when I did it, I, I think I had 85 milligrams intramuscular. Oh, I bet that's pretty deep. Yeah. So it depends on the form. Because if you because if you do like uh, I, I have a huge jar of them. <laughs> I go through them very slowly. I mean, I think the last batch lasted me three years because okay. I really do it very infrequently. Um, yeah. I mean, hardly at all actually. But the trochies I have, I think, are 100 milligrams. And because it melts so slowly, it's almost like not strong enough for me if I just do a meditation before bed or something. I'm kind of like, ah, I'm going to kick in a little stronger, but not too strong because I've made the mistake of being less than thoughtful and gone a little deeper than I intended to. And it wasn't, you know, I'm just at home by myself and it wasn't the vibe. You know, it was a little off-putting to say the least. Yeah, so with uh, sublingual, you're getting about 40% bioavailability. So if you take a 100 milligram trochee, you're getting about 40 milligrams of ketamine. Ah, okay. With intramuscular, you're getting about 98%. So <laughs> oh, you're getting the, okay. the full, full shebang. Um, so someone, you know, a trained a member of your staff or a therapist or whatever is administering this and then you know is there is there a playlist i mask yep. or are you talking to the therapist or no it's it's exactly like you described so okay. uh it's a doctor or a nurse practitioner who will administer it 
get headphones on that look not too dissimilar to this, eye mask, weighted blanket. We have these su- amazing zero gravity chairs. Um, and the playlist, it could be wave paths. It could be curated by the therapist. It's something that we're you know, leaning a lot more into, uh, including in our app now for people who are doing it on their own. We want to take those amazing musical experiences and make them available to whomever, wherever they're doing it. And you go inward and, and most people... You know, you can talk. Most people choose not to. Yeah. Uh, and then it's about 45 minutes to an hour and, and, and you're out of it. And there's a brief, you know, half hour to sort of unload whatever came up. Because we want to document that because that awareness, much like dreams, often starts to dissipate with time. So we want to capture what came up for you. And, and you do that maybe twice in a week. And then after after every two sessions, you do an integration therapy session. So we take all the information, awareness, and, and things you share coming out of the experience. And then you go into an integration therapist and, and the therapist, uh, integration therapy session. And the therapist takes that and whatever else has come up you know, in your prep if you're coming in because you know, whatever, you're dealing with anxiety. Um, you know, the therapist is prepared and has had conversations. So they know you a bit. They're not going to know you as well as if you've had a lifelong relationship with a therapist, but they have enough sure. information to just guide you through, okay, what, what, what's going on? And, and, and that's really the integration process. You know, um, I think we do more integration than anybody, um, but integration is a lifelong process. And that's what's so mm-hmm. exciting for me. And, and so that's what's shifting within Field Trip right now is um, really leaning into it being a lifestyle decision. I mean, when your eyes are open, the eyes never tire of seeing, right? And awareness never tires of being aware. Uh, and so when you open yourself up to these experiences, that 1% shift, even if it's just like, I'm going to do this more and I want to explore this more, um, that's a decision that sticks with you for life. Uh, and, and so we want to support people with that, whether it leads to them eating better, meditating, going to the gym, ending a relationship, whatever it is, it's like you're, you're now on that path and we want you to stay on the path because I truly believe that's the most important path, that, that personal growth, that self-awareness, that exploration. We live on this planet. We, we are in this life. The only thing we can say with certainty is that we get to experience it. So why not experience all of it as much as we can and take whatever we can from those experiences? And I think psychedelics really open people up to starting that journey or continuing on that journey as well. With the ketamine, um, it's such a it's such an interesting substance because in just, I'm just trying to like put together what actual therapeutic benefits of it would be because having done it myself, it's more just like a meditation tool. It's like just a deeper meditation, a little bit spacier, jump in the hyperbaric chamber, listen to Joe Dispenza. Just when I just want to like reset and kind of go quantum, kind of enter that void space for a bit and whatever. But I I haven't had experiences wherein uh, say I'm working through a traumatic experience that you know in my childhood, or I'm not really like working on things or unraveling things in the same sense that I have um, with such um, effectiveness with something like ayahuasca or psilocybin, where like I'm in there and man, I'm putting the pieces of my life together. There's a puzzle that's being disassembled and then assembled, and there's much more cognition involved in what's happening in there. Yep. Versus ketamine, just sort of being diffuse and interesting and trippy and a little bit psychedelic but then i come out and i'm kind of like what just happened you know so is the therapeutic value in it just 
kind of giving your consciousness space to explore and kind of breathe? Like, how does it actually work to affect change in negative patterns or ways of thinking or being in your life? It's, it's so mysterious to me in that way. All of it is kind of mysterious. I mean, the brain and consciousness, it's all going to be somewhat mysterious. You're right. It's not like a psilocybin or ayahuasca journey where you realize, oh, I have so much anger still towards my mother for this thing, right? It's, it's going to be more, it just takes you offline for a little while. And, and I think it gives you the space for a little while to let all that other stuff come up. So in a psilocybin journey, it kind of is punch you in the face. It's right there and you're going to deal with it. With ketamine, it just kind of creates the space to let it bubble up on a different time frame. That seems to be what happened was happening on the consciousness level. Some people have very clear ketamine psychedelic experiences, just like psilocybin. My, my experiences are more like yours, where it's like nothing crystal concrete comes out. Um, but it gives you space. You come out of it and you just feel a little bit more at ease. You feel like you've given yourself a break from the self-criticism, the self-doubt, the totally. self-talk. And that that can be a lot. And then in that window, and that's why we're so focused of the timing of, of your sessions, in those couple of days afterwards, when you do a session with your therapist, more bubbles to the surface, more comes into the conscious mind instead of being buried in the subconscious or unconscious. And then there's just the the pure neurological stuff, which is, we see after ketamine experiences, not just ketamine, we've seen it with psilocybin now as well, your brain actually starts to go into a process called synaptogenesis. So the the cells and the connections between neurons start to regrow, a process that was once thought impossible, like when something dies in your brain, it's dead. No, your brain actually starts to regrow new neural connections. So you not only have the emotional consciousness processing, your brain is actually starting to physically heal itself as well. Wow. Very cool. It is very cool. I mean, that's the thing because even though it's a bit nebulous, it's widely reported that people have a diminished sense of depression, anxiety. I mean, it's doing something to your brain and your consciousness, right? Yeah. It's just strange in that you're not actually getting to see the mechanics of how it works as the observer and participant like you are with some of the other medicines. But I mean, my friend David came out and was like, dude, I have no anxiety anymore. Like, I'm good. I'm happy. That's awesome. And and what was really freaky about his situation, and I do not advise this generally at all, because it's I think it's very unique, but after those experiences, and this is someone, as I said, who was a former, you know, self-diagnosed addict and alcoholic, right? Yeah. After his ketamine therapy, um, he and this is true to this day, and this is at least two years ago, I think, that, that, that he did this. Um, he is able to recreationally have a drink every once in a while, have some weed in the house, smoke weed every once in a while, and yeah. is not drawn to it in any kind of habitual, addictive way. Now, I'm not going to try that myself. Like, sure. that was, <laughs> I don't need to find that out because if I'm wrong, it's going to be a real problem. Um, but that was, I mean, that was profound to me because mm-hmm. he couldn't even point to, oh, well, I worked on my mother thing and, you know, my core wound and this and that. It was just like something happened to his brain and he went through the whole thing and then seemed to kind of lose that part of him that felt the need to habituate toward other substances. And again, I think that's very, maybe you could prove me wrong, but um, or have a different experience, but I think that's very rare and I wouldn't advise that people try to do that, but I just found that very interesting as someone who's worked with a lot of recovering addicts and alcoholics. And I, I'm 
I'd be hard pressed to think of anyone that was a legitimate addict or alcoholic and then is now able to kind of control it. Like you, once you cross a certain threshold with that, you're kind of, you're a lifer (laughs) and and total abstinence is going to be the only way that you can keep your shit together. I mean, that's the pretty much universal experience of people that share my past, you know? I I mean, I, I've I've never had challenges with addiction, so I, I can't really comment. Um, the the only kind of insight I can offer is, and this is the experience that I've had, you know, in the journey since uh, through making the documentary Ordinary Trip and all that kind of stuff is when a, I don't know why this this reference is being called up, but it is. I, I'm sure growing up, you remember having Commodore 64s with the old disk drive and all that kind of stuff. And every once in a while, that disk wouldn't work and it'd just sit there and spin and spin and spin and spin and spin and the program would never load with the world having iPhones, you know, the spinning wheel of death that every yeah. once in a while shows up. That's kind of what the patterns we get into. The narratives we tell ourselves just get looped and looped and looped and looped. And uh, psychedelics, I think, I think I'm quoting Michael Pollan here, but it's like a control-alt-delete. It's just like resetting the system. So you don't have to get stuck into those stories. And every once in a while, I mean, addiction may be different, but as soon as you break out of that story, you've broken out of that story. Um and and I think that's that's really the the powerful thing of what I've come to is so much of our experience is just the stories we tell ourselves, right? I'm successful, I'm a failure. Like I've told myself consciously or unconsciously, I'm a total failure almost my entire life. It doesn't matter what kind of means of objective success you can point to in my life. Uh, I don't feel like I've ever done enough. I don't feel like I'm ever good enough. That's just a story I tell myself, right? And yeah. uh, and if you're an addict, it's it's somewhat and maybe different because it can actually affect the receptors in your brain and actually change the physical structure. So it is different a little bit, maybe a lot. I, I won't even say a little bit. Uh, but when you change those stories, literally everything changes. Like nothing has to be the same. You can create a whole new narrative, a whole new level of experience. Um, I'm a big fan of of Donald Hoffman. I don't know if you've read the book. No, uh-uh. It's got a book called The Case Against Reality. I love going deep into the consciousness oh. conversation. Yeah. Uh, and his whole point is like our experience of reality bears no resemblance to actual reality. It's just how we interpret it. It's what our brains do with it and, and the interface we use to experience it. And so if you change the program, your experience with it totally changes as well. It's like changing the film that's going through a projector or it makes me think of Wayne Dyer what was the thing he said when you when you change the way you look at things the things you look at change you know it's like really that is really the key to life you know and i've been experiencing that i've been going through like a pretty big uh, transition in the last couple of weeks or so and uh man i've really been seeing that phenomenon play out it's like cuz i'm going through something challenging like a, an initiation of sorts right yeah. and uh i won't go so far as to say a dark night of the soul but pretty fucking close <laughs> a little closer than i would prefer to that right and even when i'm in it and i'm feeling really um dysregulated and uncomfortable it's like even though i know it's just how i'm perceiving the situation and kind of coloring it with um, a a brush of negativity and suffering that it's only that way because I'm seeing it that way. It doesn't mean that I'm able to totally stop it and transmute that perspective, but at least during it, I know that 
it's just my perspective that is causing the suffering. It's not the actual situation. Yeah. It's like how I'm responding to it, how I'm holding it, how I'm framing it, how I'm viewing it, how I'm in relationship to reality at the moment. It's not the objective reality that's the problem. It's just that I'm seeing it from a victim perspective or whatever the case may be, you know? So yeah. it really is. You really do create your own reality. Yeah. It's just, it's difficult sometimes to exert control over the reality that you're creating, even when you know that's what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, you know, like, 100%. It's like yeah. The inertia of creating a negative experience and the habituation of creating a negative experience is a lot to work through sometimes, you know? 100%. One of the things that helps me uh, in those moments, because you're right, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional, um, is remembering that those feelings are information. And they're trying to tell you something. What that is, to be determined. But if you remember that, being like, oh, something's up, and as uncomfortable as it is, our default instinct as humanity is to pick up our fucking phone and distract ourselves these days, right? Um, but if you just like, what, why, why am I feeling this? What is my body uh, or the universe or whatever you want to call it trying to tell me right now? It gives you a lot more permission to be like, okay, I'm just going to feel this. And, and eventually something percolates up. And, and sometimes it's, you know, uh, I just ate poorly the other day. You know, sometimes, you know, I, uh, you don't drink anymore. But if you've had a drink, you're like, oh, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's nothing other than that was, you know, you're poisoning yourself. So just do it if you want to, but just recognize that what you're, that's what you're doing. Sometimes it can be as simple as that. And sometimes it can be, you know, the universe smacking you saying like, hey man, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up and mm -hmm. deal with this thing that you've been avoiding for a long time. And, uh, and so it's like, okay, uh, now I'm going to just be aware and open up and find out what I'm being told right now. What's up with the at-home ketamine uh, therapy sessions? So it's something we're launching right now. Uh, the truth is, is we want to be able to reach as many people as possible. And, and there's a spectrum right? Which is you can have the most high touch point hands-on, also the most expensive experience, but we don't want to make that the only thing that people have access to. We want to say like, well, that's not available. Maybe you're not close enough to one of our field trip health centers, or, or maybe it's too expensive to you for you, but you should still have access to high quality care and support, even if it's not that model. Uh, and so we, we've recently launched an uh, at-home ketamine offering uh, and we're actually innovating on it right now, which I think is going to be, I can't share too much about it, but it's going to be the most innovative psychedelic assisted therapy program I think available because it's, it's going to be so flexible uh, and give you access to a whole bunch of different modalities um, that no one else offers right now. It's one of those things we can uniquely do at Field Trip because we both have spaces, but we can also ship it to your house. Um, so we're seeing great results. I mean, the results are not as good as the in-person experience, but they're more flexible, right? Um, and so it can be much more self-guided and, and people can lean a little bit more into their own schedules or their own journey, more so than our structured environment in clinic. So I'm excited by it. I think it's going to reach a lot of people. Cool. You know, there's there's it's a double-edged sword that people can abuse it when you when you give flexibility, people can take advantage of that. But I think we've modeled it in a way that we can keep people safe and thoughtful while at the same time giving flexibility. Awesome. Yeah, I I find <laughs> I'm chuckling because I find it so bizarre that there are and no judgment, but just I literally don't get it. 
that people take ketamine uh, recreationally, like for fun. <laughs> I just don't get it. And they like go out in public and stand up, like they walk around or yeah. dance. I'm just like, oh my god! Remember the first time um, someone, a doctor, gave me uh, one of those trochies. And maybe it wasn't the first time I tried it, but in the first few times. And I remember I was going to go out to my hyperbaric chamber in my house in LA, which was, I don't know, 20 steps in the backyard or something like that. And I, I put it in my mouth and I was like, ah, I got to get out there. And then I did a couple things and maybe 10 or 15 minutes went by. And then I went to walk out there and I'm like hanging on to the railing and just dizzy. I felt like the bad part of being drunk. You right, know? Like yeah. Being drunk can be awesome, but there's always a shitty part to it. For sure. Like that felt like just the shitty part of alcohol without any of the kind of euphoria. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I learned my lesson. And I remember thinking, dude, kids like, snort huge rails of ketamine and go party and stuff you know and are like cruising around in a k-hole so i'm I'm sure it could be extremely dangerous if if not done with some care um so yeah but again like you guys are sending it to someone and there's a framework for them to do it safely and there's intentionality behind it but it is still baffling to me that someone would you know misuse something that to me is like so gnarly if it's not done with that level of care and consideration. Yeah, I, same thing. I, I don't get it either. Truthfully, I don't get it with any psychedelics. Like, I couldn't imagine taking mushrooms and going to a festival or LSD. Like, that's <laughs> just either. not my jam. Um, uh, oh, but, dude, I went and saw uh, Roger Waters the other night. Yeah. And, um, and when I booked the tickets, I bought Alice and I. She wasn't even that familiar with who he was. I was like, Pink Floyd? She's like, oh, yeah, I remember Pink Floyd, you know. <laughs> but I'm like super into Pink Floyd. And so I, Probably, I would say I sprung for the best seats I've ever. Like, they're pretty expensive. And yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm probably never going to see this guy again. I've never seen him. And then I was actually toying with the idea of like taking some mushrooms or something and going all in, you know. And thank God my more intelligent self was like, yeah, it could go south. And then the minute I walked in there, I remember thinking, good fucking choice, dude. This would have been hell if you were tripping. <laughs> You know, I just, I'm with you. I, it's just not my, that's not my set and setting. The energetics of it are just way too, I would be way too vulnerable in a crowd of people and yeah. not being able to totally control my environment. And and then what used to happen when I was younger is I would take a bunch of acid or something, go see the Grateful Dead usually. And then, you know, I would always forget that like the concert was two hours and the acid was nine or ten hours, you know. I never could get that equation right, you know. I'd like get out of the concert peaking and yeah. like everyone's packing up and going home. I'm like, how do I make this stop? You can't. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, different drug, but I was I was never a Grateful Dead person. Um, and then a couple of years ago, myself and uh, a buddy of mine, Brandon Reed, who used to manage the National, uh, we were in LA and we went to see The Dead with John Mayer um, uh, at the Hollywood Bowl, which was a super cool experience. But yeah. again, I didn't like The Grateful Dead. And then we smoked a joint and then we listened <laughs> to it. And I'm like, now I understand The Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now yeah, I get totally. it. So sometimes totally. you need that perspective. Yeah. Well, I, honestly, I think the acid is what made it possible for me to enjoy the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Because I would be like, friends would play it at home. I was like, what? I remember even being a little kid when I first discovered like Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. My uncle had a record collection and he had a couple Grateful Dead records and the 
um, the artwork made it look like it was going to be like heavy rock or yeah. something, right? With the skulls and all that. I remember putting it on as a kid. I was like, this sucks. <laughs> this is so wimpy. Like, where's the distortion? Like that compared to Jimi Hendrix? Yeah. You're like, oh my God, it's like grandma music, you know? But the acid was indeed the missing ingredient. I just, uh, speaking of Black Sabbath, I just saw a picture of Ozzy. Um, He's so old right now. It's so weird watching all of these people like just yeah. age. That's you know? what. So are we? <laughs> I, I know. I know. It's just. Uh, it's you know. There's people because I mean I, I just went to see Pearl Jam uh, in Toronto, um, which was like I I was twelve when um, Ten came out, and it was a, a very influential uh, album throughout my high school years and those formative years. And in my mind, all those guys are still rocking hard. Like, you know, it's Eddie Vedder swinging from the rafters and dropping 20 feet into the crowd. Right. And they look at them and like, Jesus, they look like grandparents right now. And very <laughs> much they possibly could be grandparents. And it's, yeah. for me, I, I find it very hard to reconcile. And it feels, I mean, on one hand, it's nice they're still alive because so many of their, you know, compatriots through that generation are, are now dead. But uh, it feels really uncomfortable watching watching like these idols of mine age. And I don't know why. Uh, we well, you know what the the trick is is you just gotta follow Keith Richards, yeah, I know. who okay. doesn't age. <laughs> he lives forever. I love the Keith Richards memes. You know, I forget what they are, but it's like through you know a nuclear holocaust. There's Keith still chilling. You know, like there's a bunch of them. They're classic. Yeah. I've literally never met anyone in my life who doesn't like a little sex from time to time. In fact, some folks like it a lot of the time. The thing is that for men, their physical readiness is an important part of making this happen. Remember the last time you were at the gas station and you saw on the counter those horribly branded erection pills? Did you ever take a second to see what's actually in those products? They are terrible for you, just super toxic. And the same goes for most of the medication on the market that claims to help men in the bed, but who wants a four-hour erection, nasty side effects, heart problems, and a possible trip to the hospital to get rid of that thing? Well, luckily for me and maybe some of the men listening, I recently found this really cool product called Joy Mode that fills this gap. It's a performance booster, much like a pre-workout, but for sex. It's really cool. Joy Mode's gig is that they make natural and science-backed sexual wellness supplements for men. Their sexual performance booster is designed to support erection quality and firmness and sex drive. It contains clinically supported doses of L-citrulline, arginine, yohimbine, and vitamin C. To get yourself primed with the old joy mode, all you do is tear open the sachet and mix it with a glass of water, just like your favorite electrolytes. And uh, about 45 minutes later, it's going to be magic time. You'll notice better blood flow, better erection quality and firmness, and increased sexual energy and drive. I've actually taken this product myself many times, and uh, frankly, I was shocked that it actually worked and provided zero side effects. Do you gentlemen want to spice things up in the bedroom and boost your sexual performance? And do you want to do it naturally without those nasty prescription drugs? Well, we've got a special offer for lifestylist listeners right here. Go to usejoymode.com slash Luke and enter the code Luke at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's usejoymode.com slash Luke. I want to I ask you a couple more questions here. So uh, with the ketamine therapy, and then I want to actually get to where you guys are going and what the possibilities are for other 
substances in the future. But um, I'm curious about if someone has a clinical like diagnosis of some sort of mental pathology, be it schizophrenia or bipolar or whatever, what's, how do you work with that? Is that something that eliminates the possibility of that type of therapy for someone or do they just need a different type of care? Um, that and then also counterindications with like psychiatric drugs. Yep. We don't work with people who have severe bipolar or schizophrenia. Um, I don't know enough about the research, but the, the basic assumption is that people who are experiencing that are already a little bit disconnected from reality, so to speak. Uh, and so the thought is that that can just amplify you know, where they are instead of bringing them closer. There may be research that suggests otherwise, but even if there were, because of the intensity of the case, we're not equipped to provide that kind of emergent care if things go sideways. Mm -hmm. um, so you won't find a lot of people treating extreme pathologies with psychedelics these days just because there's so much risk involved, both for them and just liability considerations. Mm -hmm. With the exception of those major cases, there's not a lot of contraindications associated with ketamine-assisted therapy. Actually, it's one of the reasons that ketamine is actually fantastic as a more medical treatment is because with most classic psychedelics, there's a strong recommendation that people go off antidepressants if they're on them before mm -hmm. using a psychedelic. Not, I always thought it was because there was something that could interact in, in a negative way. It's not so much that, it's just because um, the classic psychedelics work on the serotonin receptors and antidepressants are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They're working on the same path. And the, the concern was that the antidepressants would actually blunt the effect of the psychedelic, not that it would exemplify it or oh, okay. exacerbate it. Um, evidence seems to be suggestion that evidence seems to suggest that's not actually the case. There have been a couple of studies that came out that said psilocybin and antidepressants are okay side by side and you still oh, generate wow. the same results. But with ketamine, we're confident that that's the case. And, and so it's why that uh, it's one of the nice things. Contraindications with ketamine, besides those extreme cases, obviously pregnancy, ketamine addiction. Um, that's about it by and large. Uncontrolled high blood pressure uh, because ketamine can cause just like any intense experience, cause your sp uh, blood pressure to spike, which huh. can be problematic. That's about it. You know, it is... People think about ketamine as a party drug or a horse tranquilizer. It's actually one of the safest drugs we have. It's been used for 50 years as an anesthetic. If you have children and they have an injury and you take them to the eMERGE, odds are they're getting them ketamine as an anesthetic as opposed to anything else. It's that kind of safety profile. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a very safe drug. Uh, truthfully, most psychedelics are, are extremely safe when you look at the data. Okay, cool. Uh, what about your film... Ordinary trip. You sent me the sizzle for it yeah. a couple months back, and I was like, "Man, this looks fun." Uh, when's that coming out, and what was the process of that? Because the sense I got is you were doing kind of an immersive journalism thing, where you're like, "Hey, I'm you know I'm talking about this. I'm in business in this space. I'm gonna travel around and just do all the things, <laughs> do all the, all the psychedelics." And that is that kind of the crux of it. Give me the the framework of that. Uh, some of your experiences. Yeah. When does it come out? It, it looked really intriguing. I was like, this is going to, if nothing else, this is going to be wildly entertaining. It, it is. And, and so I've seen the rough cut edits. Um, so the impetus for that was 
about five or six years ago, a company called, you know, MedMen, the cannabis dispensary. Yes. They had Spike Jones produce an ad called The New Normal that they were going to run during the Super Bowl. And then the cannabis industry kind of crapped out, the capital markets crapped out and spending $5 million on an ad at the Super Bowl wasn't meant to be. But it was a beautifully shot ad. It was called The New Normal because it's all about how psychedelics have gone from the normal to the abnormal back to the normal. Um, and so uh, Lewis Goldberg, who is our who is our one of our advisors and our PR, uh, uh, like our primary contact at KCSA, which was doing PR, was told us like you got to do this, you got to be the new normal for psychedelics, and something I'm passionate about. I'm less passionate about trying to solve depression, anxiety, and 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 these mental health pathologies, and more interested in helping people achieve their better selves. You know, and and it's all part of the same spectrum, but a lot more fluid in terms of helping people on this side, whereas people who are dealing with the, the mental health conditions, it's a lot more medicalized and it just has to be in our current construct. And so I'm super passionate about it. And that good friend of mine, Charlie Smith, he's he's produced a whole bunch of TV shows. I flipped him a note that day saying like, we got to do this because we'd been jamming on different TV shows and movie ideas for a long time. And he's like, dude, I was literally about to text you the same thing right back about we have to do a documentary called Normal all about psychedelics for everybody else. Because the psychedelic conversation right now is still largely camped in, in four quadrants, which is extreme mental health cases, hippies, military veterans who have experienced probably the most traumatic things any person can ever experience and and Silicon Valley Joe Rogan bro types, right? And and nothing wrong with all of those people, but that's not the other 98% of the population. That's kind of the the perimeter, you know, of of certain uh certain groups. And so it's like, how do we bring the conversation to the middle? How do we really normalize this and say, it's cool to be a soccer mom in Cleveland and still do psilocybin journeys as part of your personal growth? Um, and so Ordinary Trip was born. And it really was just me taking my experience as I'm not ordinary. I think many people object to that in the title because if you look at my experience, it looks pretty extraordinary, but in many ways I'm approachable. I deal with everyday problems that most people do. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to throw myself into it. I've had a handful of psychedelic experiences at this point, probably five. Um, and I'm going to drop in and we're going to record it and I'm going to put it all out there for everybody to see. And uh, it's been the most meaningful experience of my life. Like, really? It really has been life-changing. So in, in Costa Rica, we do a psilocybin journey and a, and a mescaline journey. I don't know if you've worked with mescaline, but it's a beautiful experience. Only in the form of uh, San Pedro and, and uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, because there is like a synthetic, going back to like Hunter S. Thompson vibes, they, oh, like, yeah. they would be taking mescaline, Ram Dass and these guys, right? It would be taking like pharmaceutical mescaline, I think. Yeah, no, we, we, we did San Pedro. We did a very ceremonial experience in Costa yeah. Rica. And then I wanted to show the flip side. So I went to our field trip health location in Amsterdam where we do psilocybin-assisted therapy. So you get the kind of polar <laughs> opposites of experience. Oh, man. And then I went to uh, BC, a place called the Enfold Institute, where I experienced 5-MeO-DMT for the first time. Where is this place? Uh, it's just off the coast of Vancouver. Oh, okay, um, because it's unregulated up there. It's it's Yeah, it's legal. So was, was this the Bufo uh, toad or was it the synthetic 5-MeO? It was synthetic. Oh, okay. Um, they just chose to do that because of yeah. some of the... You know, environmental considerations. Sure, and, sure. And so, yeah, there's a there's a lot to that whole conversation. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, and what time frame is that? Like, are, is this like every weekend or how long in between? The- <laughs> we started shooting in uh, February in Costa Rica, and then we finished up in BC in May. So it was over the course of about three months. Oh my god! Uh, and then we looped back in, and and just by fortuitous circumstance, uh, we we're getting really ready to do the the kind of end takes of like revisiting everybody who went through the journey with me at different points and see how their lives have changed, oh, and where cool. they are, and all that kind of stuff. And it just so happened uh, the author Irvin Welsh, who wrote Train Spotting, was going to be in Toronto and. He had seen our sizzle and he's like, Well, I'm in Toronto. Why don't I do five MEO DMT with Ronan and we'll record it? He's doing a documentary called, I think this is Urban Welsh. Uh, you know, we'll record it from our doc. You record it for your doc and it'll be super cool. So uh, it ended just a couple of weeks ago where he and I did five MEO wow. DMT together. And the cool thing was, is he didn't know there's a difference between DMT and five MEO DMT. Um, and so it was actually his first experience with five MEO DMT. It was such a beautiful experience. Like he comes out of it, he's perfectly stuck. I'm I'm a flaming mess on five meo DMT. I remember writhing. the sizzle, man. Yeah, You're flipping. Out. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, you know, if anyone who who watches the documentary, if if they don't have second thoughts about do five meo DMT after watching me, uh, they're not watching the documentary properly. Although I will still advocate, it's one of the most beautiful experiences. It's hard to articulate what uh, happens yeah. on a five meo experience, but you come out of it. And there's just a lightness. It feels like everything is easier for some reason. I, I don't know how to articulate it properly, but it's it's the the journey is hard, but the outcome is is worthwhile. At least for me, the journey yeah. has been really kind of. Struggling. You know what? I actually I relate to that not so much in it being hard, intense, yes, as all hell, but hard in my experience, not necessarily. I mean, it's all it's in. Um, the level of resistance. It's as hard as one resists the experience. But what I have to say about that in particular is like, aside from all the supernatural, just totally ineffable magnitude of 5MEO, I would say the after effect for me has definitely been my experience of reality is a bit more diffuse. It's like, in a positive sense, I'm here, but I'm kind of not here. Like I'm not taking all this that serious. You know what I mean? There's like like a lightness. I think is the word you used, right? It's kind of like this is all made up. This is all just pretend. I'm playing this game and Earth, and there's like a healthy. It's not a detachment because it's not like a. It's not like being. Um, it's like, it's not that it, one doesn't care, you know what I mean? It's not like a detachment, like nonchalant, or you're not invested in your life, but maybe it's just like there's less attachment to the physical, material realm. It's kind of it's kind of there, but it's it's also not there. I don't know, like you said, it's fucking impossible to describe. It is, but the light, you know, anyone can understand like a more lightness of being, and I would say universally, that's been my experience too. That's been my experience. And, and this, so the first time when I did in BC, it was just, I couldn't articulate what had happened. Just something felt different to lightness. And, I, you know, people talk about there's the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score, right? And it really felt like there was a cellular reprogramming, like something in my yeah. genetics just changed in that moment. I, I, I can't tell you why. Yeah. When I did it with Irvin, um, I came out and 
all of this grief came out of me. You know, my, my, my eldest son, Jasper, he's in the process of being diagnosed with epilepsy and, and, um, and there was like tension between my wife and I, because, you know, just in the way we respond to it and, and she was feeling a lot of grief around this, you know, and I didn't. And so I came out of this experience and all I wanted to do was hold Jasper. Like I just, like the thought of like my baby boy, I just wanted to hold him so much in that moment. And then all this grief came out and sadness and it wasn't just grief uh, about Jasper. I think it was all the grief I haven't let myself feel. And the next, next day I was talking with Steph we were lying in bed and um, she was sharing, you know, how she's been grieving about how this diagnosis is going to change the art. Cause he's, he's such a bright light. He's so smart for a six year old. Uh, and he's got such like a warm personality. And it's just like, she was grieving all of the ways that what we thought were his trajectory we were going to change by virtue of this diagnosis. And maybe not, you know, but she was grieving about the possibility of it. And I realized in that moment that I had never grieved really anything because I've for so long lived a life where I won't accept the negative outcome. It's like going back, like it goes all the way back to the story of like my, my father and just like taking the reins of, I never had a protector. So I always had to be the protector from a young age and I just would not tolerate anything less than an acceptable outcome across anything. And I've, even starting field trip, like it was, everyone said, no, no one do it. I'm like, no, fuck that. We're going to do it. And I worked and I worked and I worked it. And eventually, you know, it's just like that hypervigilance and I've been carrying it all along. And what I realized was that um, because I don't accept a reality in which I would have to grieve, in which Jasper's trajectory would be affected, I would do everything and anything possible to make sure he gets to be everything he wants to be. And I'm going to take that. And I'm going to fucking fix it until that makes that, that becomes a reality in a reality where nothing goes sideways. You never have to grieve, you never have to feel sadness. You never have to feel those negative emotions. It just, it's like, that's a world that I won't accept. And so I won't feel those feelings. It doesn't mean those feelings don't exist in me. It's just that I deny them and I push them to the side because I won't accept that reality. And then, you know, just talking about it, I was like, oh my God, how much energy have I put into my life working so hard to make sure I never have to feel these emotions? So it's exhausting. And, and, and it's like, it's, it's not the way to live your life. And so that was such a powerful, that, that was like a concrete, tangible thing. And, and here's where like, you know, my mind was blown. Right after we had this conversation, I was crying a lot um, as all of this grief and sadness came out. Um, I go to the bathroom, blowing my nose, wiping my eyes, and Steph calls to me. She's like, "Oh my god, I just realized something!" And I'm like, "What's that?" She's like, "Never had a dad." Obviously, I knew that, but the awareness of the impact—this goes back to the conversation of knowing versus awareness. The awareness of what that meant to me just came to a whole new degree of realization. Like, oh yeah, now. Now I'm really starting to understand how that's affected my life in such a deep and meaningful way. And, and, and this is where like the universe like has a fucking fantastic sense of humor. Um, my dad's name was Irvin and all of this came full Whoa. circle in an experience with a guy named Irvin, you know, an old, that's a, not even a common name at all either, by the way. I know. And it was just like, 
It's wow. one of those moments where you're just going to be like, there, there's got to be some grand yeah. orchestra playing somewhere because that shit does not just happen like that. Wow. So. Wow. Yeah. I've always been a fan of pomegranate, but I had no idea it contained one of the most powerful compounds in the world for mitochondria. It's called urolithin A, and it's incredible for mitophagy. Or put more simply, the way your body discards old dysfunctional mitochondria. The thing is that you'd have to eat ridiculous amounts of pomegranate to get a clinically effective dose of this urolithin A. That's why I get mine in a product called MitoPure, available in a berry powder, protein powder, and soft gels. Super easy to take and adopt into your daily routine. MitoPure is a breakthrough postbiotic that activates your body's natural defense against aging. It's also the first product on the market to offer a precise dose of urolithin A to upgrade mitochondrial function, increase cellular energy, and improve muscle strength. MitoPure is the result of 10 years of research by scientists at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, and its clinically proven benefits are available for the first time in the U.S. through Timeline Nutrition. To learn even more about the science of MitoPure, go back and check out episode 389 with Dr. Chris Wrench. It's a mitochondria geek out of the highest order of magnitude and helps simplify this complex topic. And in the meantime, as a special offer for you listeners, you can use the promo code LUKE10 to get 10% off any 2, 4, or 12-month MitoPure plan at TimelineNutrition.com. And by the way, I highly suggest the starter pack, which lets you try all three forms of MitoPure. Again, that's TimelineNutrition.com, and your code is LUKE10. You know what I think is what I think is actually the funniest cosmic joke of all time is that whatever the creator is put <laughs> the single most powerful key to the universe inside one fucking toad's venom that only exist in this tiny swath of desert that we now call, you know, Northern Mexico and the yeah. Southwest of the United States of America. Right. Like anytime I've had that experience, even in it, I'm like, fucking God is hilarious. <laughs> like you can't make this up. It's, it's the thing. It's the thing. There is nothing like that. You know, at least in this realm for me, Yeah, um, I haven't had a near death experience or, you know, I don't know. I don't. I don't remember my prior lifetime's death. So, as close as you can get to that, where you experience the allness, the totality of consciousness, God hides it in a fucking toad. I mean, it's like you gotta be kidding me, man. You know, mushrooms. Yeah, not that funny. <laughs> toad, hella funny. You know, because the mushrooms are everywhere. You yeah. know, so it's not. It, it, you know, there's all kinds of different mushrooms that have psychedelic properties and. And even the, you know, the San Pedro cactus, the peyote cactus. I mean, any of these things that cannabis, these things we find in nature, um, you know, it's like, wow, that's interesting that it's, it's over here and it's not over there. And it, it, it elicits these experiences. But with that one, because the experience is of such a magnitude, I just will n never not find that totally hilarious. Have you found um, during, like one of the things I found is like, there's, there's no way to describe the, what the onset of 5-amino DMT. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's intensity is unlike anything. 
But the last time, both times actually, there was a deep familiarity with it. Being like, I this is so unknown yet remarkably familiar. Have you had that experience? I'm curious to know if that was just kind of my experience or whether it's a common experience. You know, I actually, I do know what you mean. And I have that same sense with ayahuasca and 5-MeO-DMT. Okay. Like in the depth of that realm, it's this other energetic realm or dimension and there is a familiarity in there yeah and this happened actually f- for me recently where i was kind of in this uh, it was almost it's almost like oh god it's so hard to articulate in this particular experience it was almost like um an eternal courtroom it was okay. kind of like in the akashic courtroom okay and I'm in there just as a soul, like not a Luke, you know? And I'm in there and I'm having conversations with other souls that are present in my life now or that have been present before. And I'm in there like as my, as as a soul, as what you are when you leave the body and before you come into another body. And I'm in there and I my soul knows that realm, but it's a totally different realm than I could ever experience as the person that we call Luke in a physical body, you yeah. know? And 5-MeO also has access to that, a very, very similar realm where it's like kind of scary, but if you can, if you can muster up the courage to just stick with it and breathe and stay in there, you realize that it's even more safe than it is being here back in your body in your normal waking state. Yeah. You know, that's that's the familiarity. That's the piece to me is like, it's fucking gnarly at times because you know you're like in the big leagues then. You're not playing person anymore. Yeah, yeah. You're kind of, it's almost like, yeah, it's like a court. Not like anyone's judging anyone, but it's just like, it's all realness, right? It's like, there's no hiding. It. I know what it is. Everything is known. Right. Everything is known and any energies within that field also see and know everything. Yeah. Right. And that's the kind of Akashic element of it is just like, you know, I think it says in the Bible or somewhere, every hair on your head shall be counted. It's like all records of all time, because there really is no time in that space, are all known. And whoever I'm in there with, we all know that we all know. Yeah. And there's no unknowing and there's no unseen. Everything is seen and everything is shown. Yeah. So there's a familiarity in that. But that's also where the ego goes like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I don't want them to see this part. I don't want to look at that part, you know? Yeah. But like I said, if one can, you know, really have the fortitude of of spirit to breathe through and courageously stay in that realm, I mean, you can move mountains in there, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's just I could talk about five MEO all all day and, you know, too much to the boredom probably <laughs> of like people listening to my podcast on a regular basis. But and again, and I'm just gonna and I'm gonna say this and you can give whatever disclaimers you want. I also, and this is totally honest, I don't think that ever and I'm not saying, oh, I'm special, I can handle it. You can't handle it. I'm just saying these experiences can be so life altering. I truly believe they are not appropriate for all people at all times. You know, oh, yeah. it's just something one has to arrive at. Uh, on their own accord and their own discernment and prudence and something that should be approached with extreme discretion, extreme discretion. Yeah. 
you know, and that's, that's still the way I approach it. But like with something like five of me, oh, I mean, dude, you're, you're never going to be the same. Your life might look kind of the same in terms of the role that you're playing as a persona operating in your life and your family and your job and your house and being a member of society. But as you said, that like reset of your DNA, like you're never going to be the same. Yeah. It's just, it's a hard reset. Yep. It's a complete wiping of the hard drive. <laughs> and then, you know, your software gets reinstalled and you're still you, right? There's yeah. still like unique identifier as you as a persona, but like what's underneath that has all been rearranged. That's uh, exactly it. And, and I agree. Um, and I can't believe you did it on film. <laughs> I did it on film. <laughs> that's, that's vulnerable, man. That's vulnerable. Because you don't know like what you're going to do, right? I mean, I've heard stories from facilitators of 5MEO where like, people get naked, do all kinds of crazy ass shit to the point where they have to have kind of security detail to keep everyone safe, you know? Yep. Um, you know, people can do really weird shit because you, when your default mode network is offline with that particular substance, like you literally don't know what you're doing. You're not there. No. But yet you still have a body and a voice and you could do all kinds of crazy shit. You know, part of um, part of the purpose for putting it all on camera was to literally let it all hang out because I think in our world, especially in the social media world, like we only ever portray one part of us. And so you look at me and on some levels you look at a guy who's had a lot of success, you know, I went to the university of choice. I went to my law school of choice. I worked at the big law firm. Like I've done a lot of things that on so many metrics um, look like I should be, the word untouchable is coming to mind, but it's like, I got shit. I got, I got stuff. And I, and I wanted people to see that it's all work and it's all a journey. And we've all got all of these experiences in us and, and to start being okay with that and, and let it all hang out, particularly for men, you know, um, where we're not allowed to express our emotions or feel our emotions or anything along those lines. It's like, this is what it looks like. This is the real of, the character caricature that is Ronan, um, and it's. I think it's important for people to start putting it out there. Same with you. It's like yeah. when every time you share this experience, it's like, oh, yeah. Here's Luke. He's got a beautiful house in in Austin. He looks like a, in so many ways a a pinnacle of success. Yes, he's had <laughs> rocky ups and downs and all that kind of stuff. But you've got so much going for you. Yeah, you should have <laughs> seen me last night, dude. <laughs> oh God. I mean, just working through some shit, you yeah. know. Yeah, that's it, appearances are, you know, misleading. Um, two things I wanted to ask you before we close. Uh, one would be, where do you see field trip going? Where do you see the industry going in terms of variety of modalities? In terms of you know, um, decriminalization, legalization. Uh, you have in the in the Netherlands, is it you in Amsterdam? You have you guys can work with psilocybin there, correct? Where do you see yourself in five years? Am I going to be able to go to downtown Austin to a field trip and get an IV of DMT? I go where? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's two kind of separate conversations. So one of the things we realized with field trip is that not only have we built an incredible experience for psychedelic assisted therapies, we've really 
I think, tapped into a much broader conversation of people interested and curious about psychedelics. And, and there's a lot more psychedelics happening in the quote-unquote underground than in the medical clinics. And, and so we want to lean into that and we want to reach more people and, and, and bring more people into the fold. And, and whether you're coming into one of our clinics or using our meditations to do your own journey with whatever substance you want, that's cool. Like and, on and your app? And on yeah. our app, exactly. Can um, anyone get the app or only clients of the clinics? Anyone can get the app. Um, okay, cool. We'll, so, yeah. And we'll put that in the show notes, by the way. And uh, the show notes will be lukestory.com slash Ronan, R-O-N-A-N. Cool. Um, and then where does the what does the future hold? I mean, it's happening so fast, but uh, I don't know. So next year, we expect MDMA-assisted therapy to be approved by the FDA for the treatment of PTSD. Uh, interestingly, Alberta, a Canadian province, which is as most like Texas in terms of its political views, have just announced that they're effectively legalizing all psychedelics for medical purposes. Really? All psychedelics, macrodosing, microdosing. It has to be doctor supervised, but it doesn't matter what's on the, the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act in Canada. They're, they're letting you do it. We got Oregon creating the first market for psilocybin services next year in, in North America. Colorado is probably going to follow next month in November. Um, so you're going to see a lot of changes happening and to the point where I think, I, I don't know if all of them will get legalized, but I think you'll see almost all of them available in some capacity, whether medical or otherwise, probably in the next five years. I feel like LSD has got a bigger hill to climb. It still feels a lot more stigmatized than some of the other ones. Yeah. but. But we'll get there. I mean, it, it, I, I think mean, most people realize the war on drugs was a catastrophic failure. Oh so it's time to have a policy shift around that. Epic fail. Yeah. I mean, with, with LSD, and I've not used it intentionally. I haven't used it in yeah, over 25 years. But I mean, that's a tough one because of the duration, you know, thinking yes. about in a therapeutic setting. I mean, it's, it, it would, it's expensive to hire a qualified trip sitter slash therapist to sit there with you for 10 hours while yeah. your face is melting off, you know, versus some of these profound yet shorter acting substances that can kind of take you to the same depth of experience, but in, in less, you know, clock time. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I just think, you know, most people accept it's time to, to move on from that policy and, and all of these will become accept, ex, accessible in some capacity. And then our job, your job, my job is just to make sure people are doing it intentionally and, and bringing a degree. You know, people call it reverence. I don't want to impose a spiritual or religious kind of context. I just want to bring deference, bring discernment of like, yeah, you're, you're in for an experience that's going to be intense on some levels. Use good judgment as, as you step into that, right? Like, you yeah. don't get in a car, God willing, and drive drunk because it's a bad idea. Um, you know, taking a psychedelics and doing something stupid is also a bad idea. So just, just bring that yeah. level of maturity to the conversation. Like doing psychedelics and making huge life decisions while in the experience or directly afterward. You know, also a bad quitting idea. Quitting my job and leaving my wife, man, I met God. It's like, well, hold up, hold up. Let's take a few days, you know, <laughs> yeah. slow down. Um, Something that I find interesting, and maybe we can we can close on this, is something that's being developed that you guys are working on called RE one hundred and four. Yeah, uh, a new a new drug that's in development, as I understand, some sort of um, synthetic psilocybin ish thing. What, what's up with that? Yeah, so uh, Field Trip initially started as two division, Field Trip Health, which is what most people know Field Trip for, which is our, our clinics and our app and our technology. And then we had a drug development division. That drug development division is now separate. It's called Reunion Neuroscience, trades on the NASDAQ. Um, 
as you pointed out with LSD, it's a really long experience. And, therefore, and so getting qualified people to take you through that experience, it's going to be expensive. There's no way to slice it. You have qualified, experienced people. They want to get paid for their time. If you need 10, 12, 14, 16 hours, it gets to be expensive. And that's one of the challenges with, I think, really bringing these to the forefront in terms of mental health and medicine. Uh, psilocybin is great, but it's still a long experience. You know, you're four, six, eight hours that you're going to be in a space. Think about the space and the people and the time. It's it's going to be expensive. And so we asked the very simple question of, could we take all the good things about psilocybin uh, and truncate the experience? And it just so happens that there's a molecule that Sasha, Sasha Shulgin created called 4-HODIPT, um, which in the brain works almost exactly like psilocybin. Subjectively, it's almost like psilocybin. But the duration of experience is about half of psilocybin. So we looked at it and we're like, well, you got all the upside. You know, what's happening in the brain, the subjective and emotional processing is all the same. But you're in the clinic for half the time, which means you need the space for half the time, which means you need the therapists or the doctors for half the time. And that becomes a much more attractive medicine just because it becomes clinically easier to administer. Uh, so we just started phase one trials in Australia um, with it, and, and we hope to get it to market. Oh, really? Our, yeah, our first oh, indication wow. actually is going to be uh, most likely postpartum depression um, because there's a, it's one of the most underdiagnosed conditions in our society. Obviously, the impact of postpartum depression is far greater than just on the individual because the spouse and the child is affected by it quite deeply as well. And there's no real viable treatment option. The only approved drug for postpartum depression is, a, I think, a 50-hour infusion. So you have to be in a hospital or a clinic for 50 hours away from your baby, not nursing and all that kind of stuff. Not really a good option. With RE104, what we think will happen is you're going to have something where you know, in a morning or an afternoon, you can go for a transformative experience, deal with the postpartum depression, hopefully. And then within a day, be back to nursing your baby and back at home and all that kind of stuff. I, I like it's, that. It's, I think it would be cool. really powerful. So I like that because while, while she is nursing said baby, the baby's going to be getting a microdose probably for a couple of days afterwards. <laughs> we we got to make sure that it's out of the system before uh, that Activated happens. charcoal, all right. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, can, yeah. you can get it out. You know. exactly. I, I always just, I have this fantasy that like if, if a baby is, you know, intelligently exposed to things like that, that it's going to be some sort of super conscious being, you know, because you look at these indigenous cultures, um, you know, in the, in Peru and the Amazon and, Babies are sitting in ceremony with their shaman moms and breastfeeding the whole time, and everyone's chilling. I mean, it's different context, obviously, because it's a different culture and people have different customs and responsibilities in a totally different way of life. But I, I, there's a part of me that says, "Yeah, there's something to that." You know, I don't know what that is, but maybe it'll be revealed. I see it a lot actually with kids these days. They just seem to be more attuned and sensitive and aware than I was at that same age. It does feel like. We are evolving, and the I next so. generation of kids are like they're they're stepping up the game of consciousness. Um, I think so. so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having one of those little enlightened beings myself. There you go. Um, what's my last question? My last question is: When does the documentary come out, and when? Where, how are we going to be able to see it? Is it still in editing and all that? Is it a ways out or what? Yeah, so we're just finalizing edit. We're submitting to a whole bunch of film festivals, and some of the rules around film festivals is if you can't premiere it, except at that film festival. 
Uh, okay. So we just submitted to Sundance, fingers crossed, we get oh, accepted cool. there. And then hopefully if that works out, maybe I'll reality create that. Uh, we'll be pre- premiering at Sundance in, in, in February, fingers crossed. If not there, maybe South by Southwest. So it's unknown, but we'd really like to make a splash at a film festival. So it'll cool. be available once that happens. And then from there, I'm sure we'll go to Netflix and all that kind of stuff. But all awesome. of it is still TBD. But if you go to OrdinaryTrip.com, you can get a, a little flavor for it and you can see the sizzle that you've now seen. Yeah, now. I highly so, recommend people check that out. It looks it looks really cool. I was like, where's the whole thing? Like, It was an effective sizzle because I'm like, I want to watch this. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. Um, last question, my friend, is who are three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work that you'd like to share with us? Uh, so Erwin Perlman uh, has been my teacher for the last 15 years, uh, really introduced me to meditation and spirituality and reality creation. Um, I still work with him, uh, you know, every few weeks or every you know month or so. Um, and it, it's super powerful. And he's the one, a lot of what I've shared have come, has come through working with him. So, uh, if anyone's interested in checking him out, he has a website called the EP material, Erwin Perlman, EP material.com. Tom Robbins, the author, Tom Robbins has been such a profound influence on my life. I remember when I was reading, um, Still Life with Woodpecker. If you haven't read Tom Robbins, you need to read some Tom oh, Robbins. Uh, it's fantastic. He talks about his first experience with LSD. He was in, he didn't. It was the '60s, but he didn't, wasn't at Woodstock. He went to a psychologist's office and took LSD, and talks about how it profoundly changed his life. And actually, it was his reading his work that started to let me have permission to explore drugs because up to that point, it was like drugs are bad. Um, and then it just showed me a different side that they can be used productively. This was well before the cannabis industry. Um, but I remember when I was reading Still Life with Woodpecker, he has this, this one paragraph that explores how can one person be more real than any other person and just talks about, you know, thing you do in life and, and all the things that we're scared of, like people who are afraid to drink Mexican water, to eat what they crave, all this kind of stuff. Those people are inauthentic. You know, it's not entirely true. I get it, but it's like authenticity is leaning into all of those things, the things that we think are ugly or uncouth. It's like... It's all part of the experience. And, and I remember sitting up, I was reading it. And I sat up in my bed and I was like, this is the most transformative thing I've ever read. And I was so inspired that I, I texted a girl um, that I had a crush on and said like, meet me in New York. We're going on a date. And, and so she flew in from Iceland and I flew in from Toronto. And we spent a weekend together in New York, all inspired by that one passage. And so Tom Robbins, absolutely worth reading. Be warned, his books don't follow normal story arcs. It takes about 50 pages before you understand his writing style. But once you get into it, it's it's hard to go back to any other authors after reading Tom Robbins. Wow. Um, and who is a, a third person? Um, I, I would just go to a, a very recent one. Uh, I've been reading uh, Yuval Noah Harari with Sapiens and Homo Deus. And I really appreciate the perspective he offers of where we've come from and, and where we've, we're going and, and seeing things in a different light. So that would be a, another book I, I would highly recommend. There's friends and all sorts of other people who have had a profound influence on my life, but those are the three that come to mind off the top of my head. Excellent. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Fun conversation. I knew that this would be a fun, spontaneous chat after uh, being a guest on your podcast. I was like, ah, this is going to be easy. <laughs> it's nice to, you know, I'm prepared, but I didn't have to be like prepared, prepared. Yeah. I knew we would just have a fun chat and we have um, so much in common in our perspective and experience in life. So thank you, man. Really thank appreciate you. joining me and uh, 
And hopefully some people get out there and get to experience one of the field trip clinics, man. Like I said, my friend David had a great experience. I've yet to go to one because I'm already healed and don't need to. <laughs> exactly. um, you know, if, like, if there was one in Austin, I'd probably do it. You know, I'd probably do it just to, to get like an actual, uh, you know, more of the traditional experience of ketamine instead of just like, oh, I'm going to do it and meditate and then go to bed. You know, I've never yeah. really done it with any kind of structure. Next time you're in LA, I mean, we probably can't do a full course, but we can probably hook you up cool. for a more structured experience. So cool, I'll do it. I'm kind of scared of that, the intramuscular, like all at once. <laughs> you, you've had five MEO, you'll, you'll I quake off it, you'll be okay. I here. could probably handle it. Yeah, exactly. All right, man. Well, congratulations on your success. Thank Keep you. up the good work. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it, guys. Thanks for joining me on another trip into the fascinating world of psychedelics. As upside down as the world seems to be right now, it's truly inspiring to meet guys like Ronan who are doing such impactful work in the world and to see the evolution of alternative therapies like the ones we discussed. And let me say, as someone who struggled with trauma, PTSD, addictions, and mental health issues, it brings me great joy to share information like this with all of you. But man, I can't help but think, I wish these innovations in healing were more readily known and accessible 25 years ago when I was experiencing such hopeless suffering. So my prayer is that this one touched you in some way and that we part ways inspired to keep finding our way back to clarity, integrity, and of course, love. And to learn more about Field Trip and their offerings, visit lukestory.com slash field trip to find out how to take advantage of the cutting edge therapies discussed in this episode. Until then, hang tight, and I'll be back next Tuesday with Alan Bauman on episode 466, where we'll unlock the mysteries of hair loss and all methods of restoration for both men and women. See you then.